The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Luke chapter 8, we pick up at verse 26, another dramatic confrontation by Jesus with powers, not of heaven, but actually powers of hell. And an incident I said to the folks at the first service, if you had never known this story and were encountering it for the first time, you would have to say to yourself, wow, that's really a strange and bizarre story. Well, it was a true event, and it's something meant to teach us more about our great Lord and Savior. Listen as I read God's Word, Luke 8, beginning at verse 26. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and although he was chained hand and foot, And kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them that permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw that what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus... They found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured, and when all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were so overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. This is God's holy word. Before his death in 2005, a man named M. Scott Peck, Dr. Scott Peck, was a best-selling author. 
He was a professor of psychiatry, and among other things that he did in his life was to be an adjunct faculty member at Harvard University. Now, you would not expect a man with the credentials I've just described to be a necessarily a conservative thinker. In fact, you'd say, well, Harvard University, he must have broad and liberal views. The interesting thing about Dr. Scott Peck's books and analyses of psychology and mental illness are that he often echoed biblical Christianity in very surprising ways. In 1983, he wrote a book you might like to check out if you're interested in these things. It's called People of the Lie, subtitled The Hope for Healing Human Evil. Now, Scott Peck had published a previous book that was a blockbuster bestseller, Selling in the Millions, The Road Less Traveled, it's called. Now, if you've sold a book in the millions, usually publishers are falling at your feet to publish your next one. But Scott Peck actually had a hard time selling this second book, People of the Lie, Hope for Healing Human Evil, because in the book he acknowledged the objective reality of supernatural evil and claimed that there were rare cases where evil could actually take possession of human lives. He had observed it. He argued from case studies, not from theology, not from the Bible, but as a scientist, as a psychiatrist. And publishers didn't want the book. And as you might expect, the secular medical establishment, when it was published, howled with displeasure at this unscientific approach to dealing with evil in human lives. Well, the ancient world did not always explain mental illness by demon possession. Dr. Luke was no fool. He, in fact, was a wise scientist. He would have agreed, I'm quite sure, with the Greek scientist Hippocrates, that most disorders of the body, most things that afflict people, can have a scientific physical cause. And there is certainly mental illness. But there were times Luke knew and understood, and he observed, when human beings were pawns in a cosmic spiritual battle between Satan as the destroyer of the things of God and God as creator. The Bible takes demons for granted. It does not argue for their existence. It simply presents it. It doesn't even tell us a lot about their origin, except that we're led to understand them to be fallen angels, servants of the enemy, of evil, those who once were created to glorify God and now, having rebelled, have nothing to do with praise for God. In fact, they oppose everything about God. And so here comes the manifestation of God in flesh, Jesus Christ, And these unholy beings cluster around him like iron filings to a magnet. Because here they see God is doing something in the world. And if they can wreck it, they would. If they can vandalize it, they will. But they find themselves to have met their match in Jesus. Now, many have pointed out in the past there are two opposite mistakes you can make when we think about the idea of demonic spirits. One is the obvious thing, and that is to disbelieve in them. Say, oh, that stuff's nonsense. And there are Christians who say that. C.S. Lewis argues with that and says, how is it you can believe in an almighty and all-holy God and you do not believe that there are unseen beings who oppose him? Your one mistake is to disbelieve in their existence. Your other mistake could be to take on an excessive or unhealthy interest in them and fear them and become obsessed about them. 
I had a pastor friend in Maryland, one of a church of our denomination, who had folks in his congregation, that one small group in particular, that, that got very, very interested in the fact that demons were afflicting the church. And he said one time he was studying in his office, which had two windows, and he noticed several people outside the windows. He thought at first they had come as volunteers to wash the windows, but no, he saw they weren't doing that. And so he went out and asked them what they were doing. They were anointing the windows with oil and praying that the demons would not enter the pastor's study through the windows. Well, maybe that needed to be done. I don't know for sure, but I think that might signify some kind of a wrong understanding of demonic activity or at least an overbalance of it. The Bible argues for a balanced view on this subject, and I believe our passage has it, even though what we see is a very extreme example. Now, Luke's gospel has shown Jesus in control of many events, diseases of various kinds. He has brought people to life, so he's, he's literally powerful over death. He, in the very last passage we saw the last time here in chapter 8, was powerful to be able to command a storm. And now we see Jesus facing a whole phalanx of demons who had taken up residence in one tortured, pitiful man. And yet the authority shown by Jesus on this occasion is effortless authority, supreme authority. It's as if they are children before an armed and experienced soldier. I think that Luke 8.26 and following is teaching us that the power of the Lord Jesus Christ can transform and conquer any situation when His grace is received by faith. He's teaching disciples that they're going to live in a world where there are bad storms. They, even though they know him as Lord, are going to face disease and death and demonic powers. And are they going to face it in their own powers, their own capacity, or are they going to call on him who can not only command storms in nature, but storms in human nature as well? And so as a first point today, I ask you to look at the madman in the graveyard. Here in Luke 8, I think Jesus deliberately took the disciples across the lake for this particular encounter. You have to remember, he asked them to get in the boat and cross the lake. He knew the storm was coming. He wanted them to encounter the storm. And then the first thing and only thing that happens once they're across the lake is this event. He must have known of this event and wanted this encounter because he's going to get in the boat and go back across again. It's as if this was his sole errand in crossing the Sea of Galilee. To come into the territory of the Gerasenes, one of the other Gospels calls it the Gadarenes. Don't be seeing that as a conflict. It isn't. There's, if you check out Bible maps, Gerasa and Gadara are, are two very nearby places there right on that side of the lake. And they're sort of synonymously referred to as the same place. Interesting place that Jesus chose for them to come. Every detail of this place shouts one word to you, unclean. Remember, these are Jewish men with Jesus, the disciples. They are now on Gentile territory. Only Gentiles live on that side of the lake at that time, basically, or certainly dominantly Gentiles. They were in the region of, a, of what was some kind of a large cemetery of tombs in cliffs. There are cliffs there known today. We can pinpoint pretty close where this was by the cliffs that are there. 
There were many tombs, dead bones, unclean places there. Making it worse, there were pigs, unclean animals, cloven-hoofed animals, which, as you know, according to the laws of the Old Testament, the Jew does not eat the meat of the pig, nor raise them, nor have anything to do with them. And to make it worse, this was a place where demons were rampant. Now add it up. Gentiles, dead things, pigs, and demons. A poor Jew could lose his sanctification four times before breakfast in a place like that. And I think Jesus brought them there to ask themselves the question, can God work in this? If ever there was a place that they would call God forsaken, this was probably it. Can God work here? Well, verse 27 tells immediately about a strange man. By the way, the tellings in Mark and and Matthew tell that there were two demoniacs. I don't think there's a conflict here. Luke gives his focus to this one who must have been the more remarkable one. Matthew and Mark say there were two. And he's a really strange man. I try to picture what it would be like to encounter such a person. All I can think of is maybe wandering into downtown Philadelphia and somehow, you know, sometimes you can meet some people who really are not in their in their right mind or, you know, 30 years ago would have been institutionalized or on the streets as homeless people, unwashed, you know, long beards, long hair. And what if you were down there, I'll pick on Philadelphia. I don't know if we have such folks in Lancaster, probably do. But somebody jumps out, accosts you for money, won't take no for an answer and starts yelling at you and cursing you and getting in your face. That would be a mild addition of of this man. The text says the man didn't wear clothes. It it gives us detail that at one time the the townspeople had tried to imprison him, chain him up and guard him because he was a danger to himself and to everybody else, and he broke out of that, and apparently they'd given up trying to contain him anymore. He lives in a tomb with dead bones. I'm sure his hair and beard were never cut. His body was filthy. He smelled He didn't talk in normal conversation. He uttered shrieks and yells. Probably at night they heard him. Oh, that's the crazy man out in the cemetery. Matthew 8.28 says he acted, quote, so fierce that no one could pass nearby. They stayed away. He lived more like a degraded animal than in the dignity that God had created a man to live in his image. Now, why does the Bible attribute the condition of this man to demons? Why does Luke attribute it? Is it just that they didn't know enough about mental illness to know that maybe this was bipolar disorder, maybe this was schizophrenia, some other name that we could give it? Well, we think that the Scripture is discriminating, and there are very specific indicators, two of them at least here, why this was demonic possession in verses 28 to 31. First of all, because... The demon is able to name and know Jesus. Why do you have anything to do with me? Or what do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? This is consistent in the Gospels. Demons recognize who Jesus is even when his closest disciples still don't understand who he really is. You've seen this already in other examples in Luke. James chapter 2, verse 19 says that demons... Believe there is one God. And what's the result of their believing that? They shudder. 
They not only believe it, but they know he's someone to fear. And that's the second indicator here that this is more than just mental illness because the demon actually is terrified. He's begging Jesus, do not send us into the abyss. Now, if I wanted to go down the side path, I could take you to Revelation and the final disposition of Satan and his servants in the, in a, the pit of judgment forever. That's what's being referred to. These people know what their final destiny is, and they're, maybe they're thinking, uh-oh, it's the final moment. We're facing the judge. He's going to destroy us. And they begged for that not to happen and said, could we somehow get out of your presence and leave? We'll do anything. And then when asked the name, Jesus asked the man his name, but of course the answer wasn't the man speaking when the voice said, we are Legion, numberless. Many spirits had conspired to ruin the life of this man. Now, the Bible does not suggest that cases like this are are a very common thing, that they even were faced all the time by Jesus. They were actually fairly rare and extreme. Uh, Certainly, the activity of demons is not all that rare, but this kind of a case multiple demons inhabiting one man, destroying his humanity, is a rare thing. I think of what is said about Judas in the gospel in the final acts of his betrayal of Jesus. Remember the night of the Lord's Supper? He was at the supper, and it says he went out, and the disciples didn't know why he was going out. They probably thought he was going to buy something because he was the treasurer. Jesus knew why he was going. And John 13, 27 says a a dire sentence as Judas left that Last Supper. It says, Satan entered into him. The man was taken over, and he was no longer his own moral agent. The last step in his treachery. Now, you and I are probably never going to face anyone who has this kind of true demonic possession. Only once or twice in my ministry have I ever seen something that I thought and I still didn't know. But my mind was saying, wow, that really seems to be beyond mere medical disruption in that life. The thing I believe we are meant to see here is how the evil one twists and distorts a life. And it begins with our thinking, with our self-concept and our entire rationality. I noticed listening to the news this past week, and I didn't catch the remark uh, quoting from herself, but uh, someone was referring to the fact that now presidential candidate Michelle Bachman had made a little statement, evidently a toss-off remark, that she said homosexuality has a demonic dimension to it. Some of you heard that. I see the nods. Well, you can imagine how the press loves that. Homosexuality has a demonic dimension? Well, I can't say I'm ready to vote for the lady for president, but I'm ready to say right on. You've got that right. What else do you call it when God's entire perfect design for human sexuality is being turned inside out and upside down, and then people are being taught to think that something clearly repugnant to God by multiple indicators in the Scripture is now morally approved and legally correct? That is not right thinking. That is thinking turned on its head. That is morality turned on its head. 
And 2 Corinthians 11.14 says that Satan masquerades as, quote, an angel of light, and his servants are disguised as servants of righteousness. Well, that sounds like a pretty good description of what we've got going on in many mainline denominations today. I guess we were wrong for 2,000 years of Judeo-Christian morality. We just weren't tolerant enough. We didn't have it right. No, we were right for 2,000 years of Judeo-Christian morality and the morality of the Bible. But now, demonic influence has shut the eyes of men to the truth of God and has sent them howling down blind alleys of self-destruction and self-ruin. And that's what Satan does. He starts with the way we think. He aims to distort and destroy our thinking and then moves to destroy the very divine image of God in man and woman. Dr. Phil Riken has written about this passage in a book he has on Luke. Let me quote him for a minute. He says this, This madman in the graveyard shows us the wretchedness of anyone's condition outside of Christ. He said, Sin has similar effects on all of us. It exposes us as naked in our guilt. It alienates us from other people. It leaves us lonely and depressed. It fills us with violent attitudes and words, if not actions. Now, what's Dr. Riken saying? Is he saying we're all demon-possessed? No, but he's saying this extreme example really just shows the patterns of what God is doing in the cosmic struggle that is underway in every human soul to take possession of us or to influence us. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 has Paul saying that we fight a daily battle. We Christians are fighting, quote, against powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, unlike the Holy Spirit, who, when he inhabits a life, when he takes possession of a life, sets people free from the oppressions of their soul, increases their dignity, increases their self-control and their morality, the unholy spirit, the satanic influence, overpowers a personality, twists reasoning powers, breaks down self-discipline, and robs a person of self-control. And you say, well, you're just... You're just putting a supernatural cast on something that's natural behavior. Well, the Word of God insists otherwise. Satan hates, opposes, vandalizes, and wishes to destroy what God has made. Wishes to disfigure and turn inside out what God has made. And he's doing a good job in our society in many quarters today. Spiritually, you, you may not be demon-possessed, and you may not meet a demon-possessed person, But I would go quite far enough to say that if you don't have Christ in your life, you are under the direct influence of your soul's mortal enemy whose desire it is to have you live in the places of life that are full of men's dead bones. Men's dead bones. And there are people living there and saying, isn't this a great place to live? Well, let's leave that first point today from the madman in the graveyard and go to a short second point. Verses 32 and 33, my tongue is planted firmly in cheek when I call this the day pigs flew. 1 John 3.8 tells us the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy works of the devil. Now, you need to see here, fallen angels have great powers. They can truly twist and truly harm. And yet look at them cringing before the power of Christ and know that you, Christian, 
are united with this powerful Lord who is in full command of these powers of hell. You can almost smell the fear on these demons here in this passage. As they speak through the tongue of the tormented man, they try to bargain, but they know who has the upper hand. You remember Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He wrote about the power of Satan to attack God's people, but he has that that neat little phrase when he says, one little word shall fell him. The word of power and command of Christ. Notice in this miracle, you know, Jesus didn't stand there like Moses, you know, with his rod striking the rock or something and say, come out, come out. There's nothing dramatic about the exorcism at all. What it really is, is he gave them permission to hit the road. They were begging, and they could not get away fast enough from the powerful Son of God when he said, leave. I've met a few people whose lives are so out of control with damaging things, with fears and addictions and unholy thinking that if you let out what was inside, I feel like it would make the same kind of a mess as as this did when this herd of pigs went flying off the cliffs. It doesn't say to us that there were spirits equal to the number of pigs. In fact, We have to go to Mark or Matthew to get the number of the pigs, which is 2,000. There weren't necessarily 2,000 demons, but enough in their power and their frightening array that these animals were startled. It doesn't take a lot to startle an animal. I mean, you you go uh, among a herd of cows in Lancaster County and start clapping your hands and gesturing wildly, and you'll have stampeding cows. My grandfather, dairy farming grandfather, taught me to walk softly among the cows. Because one time I got them excited, and he was very unhappy with me. Well, somehow these pigs joined this stampede, and people actually criticized Jesus. One man called this a scandalous miracle. I guess he was worried about the animal rights issues involved. All these pigs destroyed. Well, as I read this, Jesus didn't drown any pigs. He allowed demons to demonstrate their mayhem and their violence as they exited and showed the destructive power that was all bottled up in that man's life. And it was meant to impress us. Look at what Satan must have been like in that man, that he could destroy this whole herd of pigs. But the passage is is urging us to understand that the life of one man made whole, made new, restored to his right mind was worth hundreds and hundreds of pork belly futures. God was saying, I have restored that which is of value to me. So thirdly, we come to the end of this passage, verses 35 to 39, and I want you to think for a few more minutes about the wonders of a mind made right, because I'm convinced that the spotlight of this text falls upon verse 35, one phrase in verse 35. There sat the man at the feet of Jesus, dressed and in his right mind. Sometimes the Bible text is a master of understatement, dressed and in his right mind. Everything about him, in other words, is an an actual opposite of what it was before, just minutes ago. 
He had been naked, now he's clothed. He had been restlessly roaming, now he's seated. He had been a solitary freak, nobody would have anything to do with, now he's in fellowship with the Son of God. He had been uncontrollable, now he is calm and reasonable in his demeanor. Dressed and in his right mind. That's a great description of salvation in Christ. Dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And in the right mind that God created us to have, he had those things. And I want you to consider this question. Who then in this text now is shown as not being in a right mind? They're here. And it's the garrison townspeople. They came out to investigate the scene. Here was their neighbor that they couldn't even chain up for his own good. You would think they would have said, oh, look at that. Wonderful. The man is cured. Let's celebrate. Or, wow, isn't God a great God? There should be a revival here. (laughs) Hardly. Some of them were standing there with their pocket calculators and, and trying to figure out how much financial loss they had incurred by a couple thousand pig bodies floating in the Sea of Galilee. This is a big economic hit. And some would say, well, that's why they turned Jesus away as they did. I don't actually think so. I think if you read this text carefully, you'll see at the end of verse 35, there's no doubt that it was seeing the former lunatic dressed and in his right mind that made them so afraid. They weren't just worried about their wallets and the local unemployment from losing all that bacon. They were terrified because of a stranger who came and disrupted their world with a power they didn't understand and they couldn't control, and therefore they wanted nothing to do with it. You see, I think the Word of God is telling us it's the people who cannot submit to Christ and trust Him as Lord who are not in their right minds. It's those who reject Christ who should be asked, why, what are you afraid of? Are you thinking he's going to deprive you of your income if you would trust in him and follow him? Are you afraid that he's going to sweep away the hog wallows that you've enjoyed living in? Is it scary for you to realize that the saving work of his Holy Spirit might be so thorough in you that it would take some of your, in fact, not some, but all of your control over your preferences and your leisure time interests? If you're going to call him Lord, if you find that you really prefer swine to a wonderful Savior, he may let you have exactly what you desire. Now, this man who was shed of these demons is an extreme case. Be sure of that. You'll probably never meet his like in your lifetime. I have not. And yet I think the commentators are right who say, we should understand that what is on display here is actually a picture of Christian conversion. J.C. Ryle, the 19th century Anglican bishop, said it best, I think. Listen to him. The change that appeared in this former demoniac is not one whit more marvelous than what passes through every man or woman who is born again in Christ. Ryle said, never is a man in his right mind until he belongs to Christ. Never is a man in his right place until he is at the feet of Christ. Never is a man rightly clothed until he wears that borrowed robe of Jesus' righteousness. Amen, Brother Ryle. Amen. He got it right in the Church of England that hated his doctrine, but he spoke the truth. 
And John Calvin said similarly, naked, torn, and unsightly may we wander afar until Christ restores us into our sane and ordered mind. If you're the one who says to Christ, leave my neighborhood, get away from me. I don't want any part of what you're doing. I can't control you. I can't understand you. I'm afraid of you. Then you're the one whose mind is darkened by the power of the evil one in this world. Romans one twenty eight gives the analysis that because of the sinful nature, God, quote, gave men over to have a reprobate mind, an anti-God mind. But then as Romans traces salvation, you sweep all the way to the 12th chapter, and the opening of that chapter says that when you've come to Christ, you are being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And one of the wonderful statements of the New Testament, it just boggles my mind every time I think of it, is 1 Corinthians 2.16. When Paul told every Christian this, he said, we have the mind of Christ. If we belong to Christ, we are possessed by Christ, and the mind of Christ dwells in us We don't think that inside-out way anymore. We know the truth of God. We see plainly things of eternity and things of earth. Now, we don't know everything, but we do think according to the truth in well-ordered ways. Satan still has his designs to wreak havoc in human lives. I've seen it, but I've also seen the forgiveness of Christ clothing people who were nearly naked in the shame of what was going on in their lives. I've seen Christ cleanse the filthiness of of lives that you wouldn't even want to tell things that had been going on in a testimony. I've seen him bandage up severely wounded people who came to his feet and confessed that they needed him and his transforming power. Jesus proves to be the stronger man who disarms the works of darkness. He accomplished that on his cross. And he offers that accomplishment to those who believe in him. And today, if you're one who he has cleansed and given this new mind, he does for you what he did for this man. Notice he didn't take the man with him on his further journeys. He sent him home. He said, no, you have a different task. Go show and tell what God's wonderful salvation has done for you. And I tell you, it's an amazing thing what even one changed man or woman who is now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and restored to a right mind can do as a beacon for the transforming power of God in the gospel. May you be such a person. May your light shine that many would say, look what God did in that life. Let's pray together. Father, a bizarre story here one that sounds like something we'll never meet, and yet shows us patterns of what's going on in the world. I pray, O God, for someone who might be held in the confused, upside-down thinking, the darkened thinking of the evil one today, buying the lies that society is telling. Transform that mind by trust in you. I pray for someone who needs to become clothed and in their right mind at the feet of Jesus. 
I pray for some Christian maybe who has wandered afar and feels like the enemy is oppressing them hard. Remind them who the victor is and who holds sovereign power over the one who oppresses us. We pray your victory and we pray glory to your name as you work in us. For Jesus' sake, amen.